talking about waiting, and fortunately for all of us, I'm something of an expert in waiting. Um, my mom was on staff at church when I was a kid, and Amy has been on church staffs for most of my adult life. And if you are a church staff family, you're like the Marines of church's attendance. You're the first ones in and the last ones out um, most of the time. And so not long ago, I got curious as I was here waiting to go home uh, and was wondering how much of my life I had spent just not leaving church. And uh, so I crunched the numbers, and I can share the formula with you if you're interested, but I estimate that in the span of my life, I've spent more than 40 full days waiting to leave church on a Sunday morning, just waiting for it to happen. Um, obviously, at this point in my life, we have also waited on more profound things. Amy and I uh, have waited a lot in our marriage together. We waited nearly uh, six years, maybe it was nearly seven years, um, between when we started trying to have a baby until we finally brought home our oldest child. That was a long season of waiting that was full of grief and also full of grace. We've waited on clear calling from God as Sam prayed for the next step, like the bend around the, the, the corner that we couldn't quite see. We've waited for answered prayers. We've waited for deliverance. And I suspect that in a room with this many people, a lot of you are waiting on something. You're waiting on a positive test result. You're waiting on a negative test result. Waiting on a letter of acceptance or a promotion about uh, on clarity for some sort of a decision. And today we're going to talk about waiting, uh, a particular kind that can intersect with all of those, which is waiting for God in some way, to say something or do something or to show up. And this kind of waiting comes up a lot in the Bible. If you were to go this afternoon and do a search, you could find all kinds of passages that talk about waiting for the Lord. And just a few of them, uh, a lot of them in the Psalms and in the prophets. Psalm 27, 14 says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and take heart and wait for the Lord. Psalm 119 says, I wait for your salvation, Lord, and I follow your commands. And Hosea 12 says, maintain love and justice and wait for your God always. So waiting is an important skill in the life of faith. And there's often a connection between waiting and hope. So in Psalm 130, it says, I wait for the Lord. My whole being wakes, and in his word I put my hope. We wait in hope for the Lord, for he is our help and our shield. And that's important because in our passage today, Psalm 42 and 43, the word wait doesn't actually show up anywhere. It doesn't actually say waiting, but it does describe the experience of waiting in a really powerful way. And it talks uh, a lot about hope. So we're going to look at Psalm 42 and 43. Melanie's going to come read it for us and explore what waiting looks like and how to find hope in waiting. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. 
how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Chapter 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre. O oh God, my God, why are you downcast, O oh my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Thank you, Melanie. Let's pray before we jump in. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank, that it, thank you that it speaks to the many different experiences that we all have and that it can give us hope and direction uh, in those experiences. We pray for your grace as we talk about a heavy subject on a hot summer day, and I pray that you would give us uh, joy in listening and confidence as we go out to be doers of your word as well. So we thank you for your presence here with us, and we ask that you would guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I'm going to have to talk with John when he gets back. He got praise and I got waiting, which is like a really depressing topic. So but we're going to make the most of it. Um, I've got three sort of easy points, and I'll point them out as we go along. If you keep your Bible open, we'll go back into the passage as we go. But the first thing I want to point out about waiting the thing that comes through really clearly in the description of waiting in Psalm 42 and 43, and description that certainly matches my own experience, is that waiting is the worst. Waiting is the worst. The Bible has a lot to say about the value of waiting and the discipline of waiting and the virtue of waiting, but that doesn't mean that we have to prefer it or enjoy it or even like it. It doesn't say anywhere, enjoy the season of waiting. Thus says the Lord. It just says that these are things that we have to do. These seasons will come. Waiting is really different from the other spiritual practices we've talked about in this series, uh, in part because the other ones 
in the other ones, we have a lot of control or agency. So we get to decide whether we're going to confess and when we're going to confess and what we're going to confess. Um, we make a concerted effort and set aside time to meditate. That's something that we choose to do, and we take the lead in it. We have whole services like this set aside for praise, and we make a lot of effort to make them worthwhile. But we have very little control over waiting. We may be able to choose how we wait, but we very rarely have any control over when we wait or what we're waiting for. It's something that just happens to us, and we have to respond. Which is to say that waiting, this discipline of waiting that we're talking about, is very often a response to circumstances that are outside our control, and usually circumstances we would avoid if we were given the choice. And that's because, or it's, um, if, as anyone who's ever waited on the Lord for anything can confirm, and as I think the psalmist in our passage can confirm, the experience of waiting is often very difficult, often isolating and anxiety-inducing. Listen to how the psalmist who wrote our psalms here today describes the experience. He says in verse 1 of 42, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. This sounds kind of at first like basic uh, piety, like we should we sang about that today. There's only you, I only want you, we're kind of hunger for God, it's a good thing. But he goes on to say that this is not just a general sense of longing for God. He misses God. He feels far from him. When shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist is describing what, in my experience, is a pretty common dynamic of waiting, which is that in a season of waiting, it often feels like God is far away. It feels in a season of waiting like when you pray, the words kind of, disappear like smoke in the room before they get through the ceiling, right? Like you're sort of alone in your space, and it feels like God is far off. And if he would just show up and listen, if he would just show up and pay attention, then things would go better. If you could just get a slot on God's calendar, when could I appear before God? Then surely things would improve. But the description here actually goes from bad to worse. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. This is a pretty deep experience of turmoil and frustration. We don't actually know uh, the experience that the psalmist is in. We don't know the circumstances. We don't know where he is or where he wants to be uh, geographically. We don't know what he's gone through or who his enemies are. But whatever is going on, we can see in the way he describes the experience that it is not merely an intellectual activity. He's not sitting still and thinking hard about something and waiting for the pieces to fall into place. His situation is visceral and emotional. My tears have been my food day and night. It means he's lost his appetite, and all he can do is weep. I have learned for me that a difference between grief and stress is when I'm stressed, I eat everything in the house. When I'm grieving, I don't eat anything at all. And so the situation we have here, this isn't stress, this is anxiety, it's grief, it's turmoil. He can't eat, he just weeps. Have you ever been so eaten up with grief or anxiety that you can't do the basic things that you're supposed to do? Eat, wash your face, comb your hair, I've been there, our psalmist has been there, 
And I find that really encouraging, uh, that the Bible attests to those feelings. This turmoil for him is not just something that happens now and then. For him, in this period, it is a steady state of mind. If you look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 42, he says, Why do I go on mourning? I persist in mourning because of the oppression of my enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones. Or in uh, the New International Version, it says, My bones suffer mortal agony. He's feeling it everywhere this experience. So the reason I feel confident saying waiting is the worst is because the way it's described here, waiting can take a toll on your body. Grief, anxiety, loss of appetite, sleepless nights, it's not just a spiritual thing, it's a whole body experience. Nobody who reads the description of waiting in chapter 42 and 43 would say, I'd like to do that. Sign me up. Where's the class on waiting? I need the credit. So it's just the worst because it involves all of us. And over time, that whole body experience can take a toll. So waiting is the worst. That's point one. And point number two, another feature of waiting that makes it challenging is that it's very often waiting is a struggle on several fronts. Waiting is a struggle on several fronts. There's at least three in our psalm today that I want to point out. One or the first area of struggle in waiting is often waiting means that we're struggling with God. So in our passage, waiting for God puts our psalmist at odds with God. And the longer it lasts, the more he feels like God is not just quiet or distant, but that he's actively against him. Listen to how things progress in the psalm. So in 42 verse 2, oops, I turned the wrong way. 42 verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God? He feels that God is far away. Where can I go and meet with him? Soon enough, verse 40, uh, chapter 42 verse 9, he says, I say to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? It's getting more intense from God is far to God has forgotten and then in 43 verse 2, it says, You are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? You see the progression from far to forgotten to rejected. He feels outright abandoned by God because of the waiting. And these are really intense feelings. Distance, forgottenness, rejection. And they can be really frightening when you feel them about God. What I think is really great about our passage, the model that it gives us, is it suggests that the best thing you can do with those big, hard, scary feelings is to be honest with God about them. If you feel like God is far away, tell him that. If you feel like God has forgotten you, tell him that. If you feel like God has rejected you or wronged you or failed you, tell him that that's how you feel. Um, I recently got honest with God in prayer. My, I work for a Christian organization. We had a morning of prayer, and we were supposed to do a prayer walk in our neighborhood, but it was like 115 degrees. And I like following the rules, and I love Jesus, but I do not like to walk when it's 115 degrees. So I did a prayer drive, which I felt like was in the spirit of the activity. I moved through space, you know, and prayed. Um, and while I was doing that, I got honest with God about how I was feeling. That was our prompt for the prayer. And I was wrestling with the fact that 
not long ago, it felt to me like God had given us a good gift. That God had answered a prayer by giving us something that we needed. And recently, it feels like that thing is being taken away. And I, it has weighed on me for several weeks, but I finally was able to just tell God, that's not fair. It doesn't seem right that you would give with one hand and take with another. I don't like it. I'm mad about it, and it's not, it's not, I'm, it's not cool. And so I think it didn't solve my problem, but it pres- provided some relief to just be honest with God and say, I feel this way. You already knew that I felt this way. But now we're all on the same page because I'm just saying the hard parts out loud, right? It's really important when we're waiting to remember that God is big enough to handle all of our biggest fears and feelings. That there's nothing pious or righteous about stuffing them down and keeping them to ourselves and putting on a brave face before God because God already knows what the circumstances are. And so to address the struggle with God that may come while we're waiting, I recommend, and I think our passage recommends, that you take those honest feelings to God and just tell him about it. Tell him how you feel. The struggle with God is kind of hard enough on its own, but there's a second struggle, another front in the battle when waiting, and that is that waiting can involve conflict with other people, struggle with other people. There are people in our passage here who are fueling the psalmist's despair, making it worse. It's already bad. They're making it worse. And just as his feelings deepen with God as time goes on, so does the way he describes these people who are around him while he's waiting who are not helping the situation. So in 42 verse 3, he says, Tears have been my food day and night while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? It's a pretty general kind of term, people. The people in this case, our speaker is surrounded by people who are delighting in his spiritual despair. He feels far from God, and there are people around him who are saying, why do you even bother? God's not coming. God's not listening. You can wait the rest of your life, and God will never show up. You're on your own. And this voice is in the back of his head, and as the Psalms progress, the psalmist's language about these people gets stronger. In verses 9 and 10, he said, Why must I go on mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My foes or adversaries taunt me, saying to me all day long, Where is your God? So we've gone from people to adversaries. And again in 43 verse 1, he refers to them. (laughs) He's lost perspective, maybe. A whole ungodly people, a whole nation. He's like waving all y'all are deceitful and wicked, deceitful and unjust. And I'm going through something, and these people are delighting in my misery. They're making it worse. The longer the psalmist waits on God, the more antagonistic he feels about the people who sow doubts and fan his despair. And the problem with these people for him is that while God is being silent, they are being very loud and clear. So the only... um, The only broadcast he's receiving is people who are telling him that God can't help you and won't help you in this situation. That messes with your head over time. Now, here's where my experience from the psalmist is pretty different. As far as I know, I don't have any enemies, like proper enemies. I think it would be cool to have a nemesis. But I don't have a nemesis as far as I know. 
I, we have been through crises of faith. I've waited through long seasons on the Lord, and I have never had foes or unjust people delighting in my despair, as far as I know. They never said it to me. I've never had anyone tease me about a lack of faith or taunt us when we were waiting on the Lord to answer our prayer for a family. No one was delighting in our misery. But I have had the experience of other people's voices being louder and clearer than God's in a season of waiting. Uh, often is not, in my experience, those voices were often well-intentioned and misinformed, trying to help, but actually just kind of muddied the waters and made things worse. And I feel bad to bring them up because their heart was in the right place. But I say it uh, not to their shame, but just to kind of help us out. That Maybe you've had that experience. Maybe you've had the experience that you're waiting on the Lord and you share it with somebody and they minimize the waiting. It's not so bad. It's fine. Every, this happens to everybody. Don't worry about it. And they just kind of push it down. They're trying to encourage you, but instead you realize this, this, this person can't help me. There's no rest here. And other times people make promises that they can't keep on God's behalf as if they have access to what God is thinking. So in our process with um, infertility and other things, people would say, don't worry, it's going to work out just the way you want. And I think, why on earth would you have any access to that information? Like, what? how could you possibly know that? And so you got people sort of minimizing your experience on the one hand and other people saying, it's hard now, but it's all going to pay off in the future. And frankly, in the moment, I don't really care much about the future. I care about right now when things are hard and you don't know anyway, right? Those people are trying to be encouraging, but they're demoralizing. And so when we're uh, waiting and the voice of God is quiet and the voice of other people is loud, I encourage you to actively seek out voices who direct you toward God and, to, and do your best to block out those voices that drive you deeper into your doubt. The final thing here um, that comes through in the text, the final struggle, the struggle with God, a struggle with others, is also a struggle with yourself. And I love the way this psalmist describes this experience in our passage because it is so relatable, at least to me. In uh, chapter 42, verse 5, the psalmist is talking to himself, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is pretty classic self-talk. I don't think they have that word in the Hebrew, but we know what that is now. Um, he's just talking through One day, it's like, I shouldn't be so upset. God's got this. And then the next day, I am upset. Everything's terrible. And you're trying to talk yourself out of it. Look at the way he, it, this kind of comes out in the passage. So verse 5, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? And then the very next line or paragraph my soul is cast down within me. So he's talking to himself, and he's both speaking parts. I am cast down, and I can't take it. Actually, it's going to be fine, because God is good. Nope, I'm, I'm suffering. My bones are aching. I haven't eaten anything. I'm just crying all the time. But God's got this. It's okay. Like This is an internal struggle, and he's having the whole conversation with himself. One day you summon up perspective, and the next day it evaporates. Three times in the passage, the psalmist repeats this refrain, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. 
for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And two times he follows that with a, yeah, but I'm downcast. This is another great thing to do when we're waiting. There's a good insight here. What the psalmist does in order to help in the situation, to help his own inner wrestling, is to remind himself about who God is and what he has done. So in verse 6, chapter uh, 42, verse 6, he says, My soul is cast down within in me, therefore I remember you. So the active thing that he does is he tries to call up good memories, reminders of what God has done in the past, so that he can have got confidence about how God will act in the present. We're going to spend a whole sermon on remembering next week, but for now, just look at how remembering is a discipline during a season of waiting. Because he's cast down, he actively remembers good times with God in the past. He remembers worshiping in the temple with crowds of people. He remembers being close to God in the holy land. He remembers, uh, he reminds himself that the God who heard him then can hear him again in the present. And what's really important, I think, that what makes this helpful and functional is that his self-talk is not about himself. His self-talk is not, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, doggone it, people like me. He's not talking, he's not trying to summon up true things about himself. His self-talk is about God. His hope is in the fact that God is, at the end of each of those refrains, my Savior and my God. That's where the hope is. Not in his insight, not in his ability to white-knuckle the waiting, but in the reminder of who God is. This is the right move. He's doing the right thing. And the psalm actually ends with this refrain of hope. The last line is this reminder that God is our Savior and our God. But it's hard to maintain this process. When God is quiet and other people get in your head, either to revel in it, which may happen less, or to diminish it and dismiss it with platitudes, which may happen more, or when your own heart is wavering from day to day, we got this, we don't got this. You can't last forever on self-talk. And so that brings me to our final point, which is that waiting should be a group activity. Waiting should be a group activity. Uh, waiting can be isolating. It's a form, it can be a form of silent suffering where you draw into yourself and withdraw from others out of healthy connection with other people. And it's striking to me that in our passage, the only community, the only other good people that the psalmist describes um, in these two psalms, it's all in the past. So in chapter, uh, verse 4, 42, 4, says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. What's hard for him is that part of his grief is that he used to be close to God and he used to be close to other people and right now he's not. So the sort of separation from God and separation from community go together for him. His hope is that someday I'll get to worship God again and when I do, I'll be surrounded by other people who worship God too. And so there's this, this pairing of waiting in isolation and um, feeling the weight of it and hope having the promise, not just of connection with God, but connection with other people. 
And this gets us, I think, to a really important difference between the psalmist's experience and ours. The psalmist uh, needs to change his location to be close to God. So we don't know exactly what's going on, but several times he says, I used to go to the temple, but now I can't go to the temple. What I need is to get to that place where I can worship God in a particular geography, right? He needs to change his physical circumstances in order to be close to God. And down towards the end of the passage in 43, he talks about finally being able to go to God's holy hill, to go to the altar of God, and there finally he will rejoice. Remember that this is an Old Testament passage. This is many hundreds of years before Jesus. What is significantly different from those of us who follow Jesus is that our place is not our problem. Okay? Now, don't hear me say that you can't ever be in a place that's problematic. It can be. What I'm saying is, God doesn't live someplace and you sit somewhere else. Right? We're not far from God geographically ever. This, um, God has come close to us permanently in Jesus. And in the New Testament, Jesus is called, one of his many names is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And one of the promises of the gospel then, God's good news, is that we may feel far from God sometimes, but we are not actually far from God any of the time. We are never far from God. There may be times when the voice of others and the voice of our own doubt is louder than the voice of Jesus, absolutely. But that won't ever be because Jesus is far from us or has forgotten us or has rejected us. In Jesus, God is always as close as our own heart. And I think perhaps the most concrete and tangible way to, um, to, to experience God with us in Jesus when we are waiting is through our brothers and sisters in the church. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Germany during World War II, wrote an excellent little book called Life Together, and I think everybody should read the first half of that book every year. It's really fantastic. Um, I don't read it every year, but I think you should read it every year. Um, he was a pastor during World War II, which meant he was in an extreme time of waiting because the Nazi regime was either asking churches to get on board with what they were doing or they were eliminating them, and he was a resistor of what was happening. And in that time, his hope was other Christians. He says, the Christ in the mouth of my brother or sister is stronger than the Christ in my own heart. My heart is uncertain, but the word is sure. It's strange wording, but he's basically affirming the experience of the psalmist in my passage, when, or in our passage. When God is quiet and the critics are loud and my own heart is uncertain, I need someone else to remind me of what's true. I need you and to remind me, and you need me to remind you of what's true. And that's because ultimately hope is social. It's impossible to hope alone. And so waiting has to be a group activity. None of us is strong enough to wait faithfully and put our hope in God all by ourselves. As a small quibble, not with our church's worship music, but with worship music in general, you can sometimes get the idea that Jesus is all we need, and I think at a fundamental spiritual level that is true. But one of the gifts that Jesus gives to us is each other. And one of the ways he meets us concretely 
is through each other. And so a crucial discipline while you are waiting is seeking community. And for those among us who aren't in a season of waiting, our job is to be the kind of community that can be a place of rest and reassurance for people who are waiting. So there's the discipline in the waiting, and then there's the discipline all the other times to make sure that we're the kind of people who can be there for people who are having a hard time hearing from the Lord. Amy and I have a great example of what that kind of community looks like. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning we were pursuing fertility treatments and waiting for God to answer our prayers for a family. And Amy was on staff at a wonderful, quirky church in the Chicago suburbs where we were living at the time. Uh, she was ministering to children, and one Sunday morning we had communion, and she had it had been an emotional Sunday. And some girls in an elementary Sunday school class noticed and were concerned, and so they asked questions. What's wrong with Miss Amy? How can we help Miss Amy? You know, et cetera, which is very sweet. Amy... Um, trusted the kids uh, well enough to appropriately, but honestly, express to them why she had been sad and that we were waiting to start our family and, um, and to tell them kind of how hard the season of waiting had been. What we didn't know until later is that that group of elementary students uh, started that day to wait with us. Um, <clears throat> one of the ways the teachers in that class manage the energy of elementary students is that they taught the kids to knit. I had the corresponding boys Sunday school class, and we used woodworking, which was moderately successful. Uh, but I think it went really well in the girls' class. They were knitting. So while they read the Bible and they worked through the lesson and they discussed, they knitted things. And it was great. The teachers and the girls all had their little bags, and you can see them around church um, with their bags of knitting. And uh, after Amy shared with them our desire to have a baby and the long, hard time of waiting we were in, uh, they started knitting something for us in their Sunday school class. For the rest of that semester, each of the girls knitted a square um, for a blanket. And at the end of the semester, the teachers knitted those squares together and um, into a blanket that we would eventually use to bring home our oldest um, the squares are all different colors, and some of them are tight, and some of them are loose, and the whole thing together is like roughly the shade of, shape of the state of Texas. Um, <laughs> but it is a beautiful, beautiful milestone for us, an image of God's faithfulness in waiting, and what it looks like to be a community in which people can wait for the Lord. What we did right was resist the urge to retreat into isolation in our waiting. And what they did right was to join us in our waiting. Some, the adults, joined us with words of encouragement and reminders that Jesus is near and listening. Actually, one of the most helpful things anybody ever said to us who had been through a similar season of uh, you know, taking a very long time to start their family said, uh, we went through that too. It was very hard and we still don't understand what God was doing. And that meant the world to us. They didn't try to tie it up or clean it up. They just said, we've been there, it's hard, let us know what you need. Um, these children, others joined us by making us a tangible sign of hope, a blanket that we would use someday, Lord willing, whether we felt like it or not. And so Amy's gonna come up and lead us in an extended time of reflection. It, it, Excuse me. 
done good not being emotional, but now I can't speak. So um, Amy's going to come up and lead us in an extended time of reflection. And if you are in a season of waiting, Amy will have some practical suggestions for you. But I would just want to introduce that time by saying, please know above all else, this good news. If you are waiting, Jesus is waiting with you. He is not far away. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't rejected you. And he's eager to meet you in this waiting one way or another.